1: Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase, and a member, FDIC, 2024, JPMorgan Chase & Co. Now is the time to accelerate innovation. T-Mobile for Business is powering Formula One Las Vegas Grand Prix operations and epic fan experiences with secure, reliable 5G connectivity. Because an event this big and this fast deserves a network that can set the pace. See what our 5G advanced network solutions can do for your business at t slash now. View 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com.
0: This episode discusses death by suicide. If you're suffering emotional distress or having suicidal thoughts, support is available. For example, from the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Following the barbaric murder of Mary Jane Kelly, the Ripper seems to disappear. The weeks stretch into months, then years. When the dead bodies of women are discovered in the locality, and they are found with dismal regularity, police surgeons search them for any knife wounds akin to the Ripper's trademark savagery. Might this cut signify the Ripper's return? Might that slash? The medical experts bicker, and no consensus is reached. So what lies behind the halt in the Ripper killings? Has he fled, even emigrated? Has he been imprisoned on another charge? In a house close to where Kate Eddowes perished, a doctor is signing a certificate. Henry James Sequeira judges its high time local butcher, Jacob Levy, be returned to a lunatic asylum. Levy has been confined in such an institution before, only coming home to the family butcher shop in 1887. But his continued erratic behaviour is causing alarm. The man raves and restlessly wanders the streets at night, Sikera notes. He also talks of committing violent acts. With the stroke of a pen, the doctor consigns Levy to an asylum. Has Sikera, in fact, caged the Ripper? Some will make that very case. The crimes of Jack the Ripper cast long and disturbing shadows setting in motion events that will cause great anguish to the families of the dead and sully the reputations of many perfectly innocent bystanders. The hurt, shame and suspicion doesn't end in the 1880s. Worryingly, it endures to this very day. I'm Hallie Rubenhold. You're listening to Bad Women, The Ripper Retold a series about the real lives of the women killed by Jack the Ripper and how we got their stories so wrong. One side money plenty And friends too by the score Then fortune's money The body of Annie Chapman, the coachman's wife, cursed by alcohol addiction, was discovered early on Saturday, the 8th of September, 1888. Perhaps a police constable was then dispatched to inform her siblings. Perhaps he knocked at the door as the Presbyterian teetotalers were preparing to leave for Sunday services. Or maybe the first the Smith family heard of Annie's fate came in the newspapers, which called their sister.
4: A woman of low life.
0: Early reports referred to her as... A poor
4: creature.
0: They spoke too of her drinking. And while they admitted that Dark Annie's primary occupation was selling fabric chair coverings in the market...
4: There is little room for doubt that her earnings were eked out by less creditable courses.
0: The Daily News went on to say that the corpse discovered in the grubby yard off Hanbury Street had been
4: mutilated in a manner too horrible for description.
0: But then went on to describe much of the horror anyway. Annie's siblings couldn't bear to tell their elderly mother that the daughter she had lost to alcoholism had now been killed, nor that her murder had been so gruesome. They also smothered their shock and grief before the two children Annie had left in their care. They would never know what fate had befallen their mother. A shroud of silence was drawn over Annie Chapman's story. It would remain in place for generations.
5: I know that my dad didn't know about it. I'm pretty sure my grandfather didn't know about it either.
0: This is Neil Smith, the great-great-grandson of Annie's youngest brother, Fonten Smith. He only discovered his connection to the Whitechapel murders when he googled his family tree and all sorts of ripper links appeared.
5: I'm fairly certain that Fonten himself probably had not talked about it to his direct family because of, A, probably the trauma and the distress of having your sister murdered, for one thing, but also the stigma attached to the Ripper case. She was an alcoholic, she had a broken marriage, and there was the implication from the press and the police that she was a sex worker, whether that was true or not. And so all of these things would have been an anathema to a, a Victorian aspiring middle-class man, I would have thought, so... I can understand completely why it would have been hushed up.
0: As the man of the family, the worst tasks, those that required a public face, fell to Fonten. And so it was he who identified the torn, ragged body of his elder sister and stood before the coroner to testify at her inquest.
6: I last saw her alive about a fortnight ago, in Commercial Street, where I met her promiscuously. I gave her two shillings. She did not say where she was living, nor what she was doing. She said she wanted the money for a lodging.
0: Fonten may well have been the last of the siblings to see Annie alive, and he may also have lent her money more often than he cared to admit, either to the public or to his own teetotalling family. When it came to helping Annie out, he would likely have been a softer touch than his siblings, and good for standing her a drink or two, for, like his sister, Fonten Smith was an alcoholic. Fontaine buckled under the horror of Annie's murder. And as he fell, he grabbed for the one thing he knew would provide him with immediate, though fleeting, relief. The bottle. Within a month of the harrowing ordeal of his sister's death, he had suffered a breakdown. After stealing money from his employer to buy drinks, he lost his job as a warehouse manager. Friends intervened and found him another position... But Fonten's misery followed him there too. One day, unable to cope, he filled himself with alcohol and his pockets with his employer's funds. Then he abandoned his wife and two children and disappeared. A week later, the family received a letter from the city of Gloucester, where Fonten had walked into a police station and surrendered himself. At the foot of his confession,
6: he wrote, Oh, my darling wife, it's all the cursed drink. For God's sake, don't let the children touch it. He was
0: taken back to London, found guilty and sentenced to three months' hard labour at Millbank Prison, where the chimes of nearby Big Ben marked out the excruciatingly slow passage of time for inmates. Upon his release, Fonten resolved to start his life afresh, taking his wife and children across the Atlantic to settle in the dust and heat of Texas. Neil grew up learning the same Ripper stories as the rest of us, the stories that denigrate the women. He was amazed to uncover his links to Annie and found the discovery caused a shift in his thinking.
5: Despite the fact that obviously I never met Annie, she's still not a very distant relative. I definitely identified with her. And imagine that she might have felt some of the same things that I feel, which normally you don't really think about that with somebody who lived 150 years ago. It certainly brought her to life for me. And it did make me identify with her and and feel, you know, very sorry about what happened to her.
0: But Neil's empathy, heightened by his connection to Annie's story, isn't shared
6: by everyone. They'd fallen on hard times a lot of the time because of their own doing. Not because anybody had made them homeless, not because, you know, anybody had made them poor, not because anybody had made them walk the streets at night. It was of their own
5: doing.
0: I told Neil what former policeman Trevor Marriott had said about Annie, that she was to blame for her own poverty and homelessness, that she'd chosen the bottle over her family.
5: That's basically like the Victorian attitude, if you like, that alcoholism and mental health problems were a weakness. Obviously, she didn't choose this way of life. Unfortunately, she had an, a disease. To have that attitude is uh, it's unsympathetic, and it's just wrong, basically, I think.
0: Trevor's unsympathetic attitude has annoyed many listeners. Some of you have even asked us not to air any more of his views. But Trevor isn't just a Victorian throwback or a modern outlier. There are Trevors all around us, and we might all embody Trevor at times too.
7: We would like to assume that the world is a just place, that, you know, truly awful bad things don't happen to good people, right?
0: Lori Santos is a professor of psychology at Yale University, and she's describing a common cognitive bias that explains why we often find it so easy to feel detached from women like Annie and are so
7: quick to shift the blame onto them. We kind of want to believe that if we do the right thing, good things will happen to us. But it also leads to this insidious rationalization, which is like when you see a bad thing happen to a person, your first instinct is to assume, well, maybe there was some reason there, right? Like Maybe it just didn't happen by chance. Laurie says
0: a classic example of this is when someone leaves their purse in their car and then that car gets broken into.
7: Your first instinct is to be like, well, maybe it's kind of her fault that she left the person in the car to justify, like, why wasn't it your car that got broken into? Or a friend tells you, like, oh, my gosh, my sister just found out she has liver cancer. Your first instinct often isn't, like, empathy. It's like, well, I wonder if she, like, drank too much or didn't take care of herself. According to Laurie, this type of thinking emerges in
0: children as young as four. So it makes sense that it's still with us as adults. It's
7: a quick, knee-jerk response. If you tell little kids, kid versions of the stories, we wouldn't talk about, you know, Jack the Ripper, serial killer murders to little kids. But simple things like Joe was walking to school and he got pooped on by a bird. The kids will start justifying, well, you know, maybe Joe did something wrong or he's a bad person, right? He can't just be unlucky. There has to be some reason for this, right? Our brains start unconsciously looking for evidence that there might be some reason in there that it's a just dessert.
0: Perhaps the Smith siblings did just this in September 1888 and convinced themselves that Annie the drinker, Annie the errant mother, Annie the lowlife, had somehow invited her own murder. Putting this cognitive bias under the microscope, stopping
7: to think that victims might actually be blameless, is uncomfortable. As a woman, it's hard for me to believe that, you know, I could just be the victim of violence. So I have to say, well, there must be something that that other woman who's a victim of violence did to deserve it. You know, that protects me. That's a whole host of mental gymnastics. That's me rationalizing. But it has this benefit, which is it protects me from a really scary belief. Maybe there's no reason that I'm not the victim of violence. Maybe there's no reason that I happen to, you know, not grow up as poor as some of the women you're talking about or poor as some of the people in the modern day. Like, it's just an accident. I don't really deserve it. It's just kind of unfair.
0: There are many other figures caught up in the tangled web of the Ripper myth who deserve our empathy.
8: Yeah, I mean, I'm still very compelled by the story and fascinated, and it's just, it's a very sad and gut-wrenching story, really.
0: Hannah Jones is the great-great-granddaughter of Jacob Levy. Some people have said Jacob was the Ripper. He worked near Whitechapel as a butcher, and one expert witness thought the Ripper displayed a butcher's skill with a knife. The Ripper was also often described as a madman. And Jacob had experienced mental health problems and spent time in
8: asylums. In the notes from his first admission, 1886, there is a brief mention of violent behaviour. In the notes from his second admission in 1890, it says that he feels that if he's not restrained, he'll do some violence to someone. Also that he feels compelled to do acts contrary to the dictates of his conscience by a power he cannot withstand. Basically, those are the comments which excite ripperologists.
0: The theory cobbled together from these scant notes is that Jacob contracted syphilis as the consequence of a moral transgression, that is, after sex with a prostitute. Afflicted with grievous symptoms when the disease began to attack his brain, he wrought bloody vengeance on any woman he believed to be soliciting in his neighborhood. Syphilis retribution theories like this are common because they're convenient. They satisfy that cognitive bias we have, they let us relax into thinking that the women determine their own downfalls. They also bring some order to what are otherwise senseless crimes. Of course, it all relies on the women being prostitutes and Jacob being a syphilis-ravaged monster. And there's no shortage of books, web pages, and even video games portraying Jacob as just that. Hannah has stumbled across several horrific depictions, but has kept them from her relatives.
8: I think if my grandfather were to see that, he would be quite upset.
0: And he has every right to be upset. Once you dig deeper into the Jewish butcher's life and approach his plight with empathy, the true and more tragic story of Jacob Levy emerges. More after this short break.
9: Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief.
1: J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company.
3: Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort style amenities, and high quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.
0: Jacob Levy was born in East London in 1856. At 15, he was recorded on the census as a butcher, a family trade he likely began learning at around the age of 12 or 13. Jews in London were a small minority and subject to wider society's deep suspicion. As Jacob grew into a young man, the influx of Eastern European Jews fleeing murder and persecution and then settling around Whitechapel became something of a national panic.
4: The foreign Jews of no nationality whatever are becoming a pest and a menace to the poor native born East Ender.
0: One visitor to the streets around Jacob's home declared, there was nothing English about the place, only foreign faces, foreign shops, foreign talk. Against a backdrop of vast continental upheaval, domestic calamities struck the Levy family.
4: Deceased had bet heavily on the races, and on the arrival of the news of the result, he appeared very desponding. A doctor was called, but life had been extinct some time.
0: Jacob's older brother Abraham took his own life, possibly because of a debt incurred on Derby Day, a highlight of the racing calendar and a tempting focus for expert and novice gamblers alike. It was young Jacob who forced open his brother's locked door and discovered the body. Jacob soon married his close neighbour, Sarah, and by 1881... They had moved into rooms in a house nearby with their two children and a servant girl who likely lived in to cater to their family on the Sabbath when their Jewish faith forbade them from working. Jacob eventually took the helm of his aunt's butchering business and he and Sarah had two more children. But misfortune loomed for the growing young family. In March 1886, Jacob was arrested for the theft of a side of beef from a neighbouring butcher and tried at the Old Bailey, a famous court where some of England's most serious and notorious cases are heard. Jacob seems to have entered into odd early morning negotiations with his neighbour's employees, encouraging them to pass him a 14-pound piece of meat. As a policeman watched from across the road, a young shop boy handed over the contraband.
4: I ran in to leave his shop. ...caught hold of him with the meat in his hand and asked what he was going to do with it. He said, we are only having a lark, I am going to weigh it. I said I did not believe it and then took him to the station where he repeated that it was only a lark.
0: In court, the neighbour seemed puzzled by the theft. It was clearly no practical joke. He wasn't on joking terms with Jacob. But nor were they rivals. The value of the meat was paltry and Jacob was by no means poor nor could he quite believe a fellow butcher would stoop to common theft, saying that the Jewish authorities would not give a man a license unless he had an excellent character. The judge did indeed direct the jury that Jacob Levy was of good character, but the butcher was found guilty, and the jurors did not recommend he be shown mercy. He was sentenced to 12 months' hard labor. But just weeks after his arrival in prison, The authorities began to suspect a root cause for his peculiar foray into petty crime.
4: He is in a state of melancholia, cries without adequate cause.
0: Jacob was transferred to a lunatic asylum. His admissions file details his mental decline.
4: He is very despondent from the fact that he attempted suicide at jail and that a brother committed suicide and insanity is hereditary in his family. I consider him suicidal and insane.
0: And yet, his health appears to have quickly improved. In 1887, he was deemed to be of sound mind and fit for discharge. He returned to his wife and expanding family. Sarah and Jacob would have eight children in total. But Jacob's mental health continued to decline, with devastating consequences. Sarah struggled to keep the butcher shop afloat lamenting that Jacob was ruining the business. He couldn't be trusted with money, ordered goods indiscriminately, and continued to steal other people's wares too. More worryingly, he often had difficulty sleeping and mysteriously wandered off for hours at a time. He raved and feared that someone was trying to do him harm. Such symptoms weren't uncommon among men of Jacob's age and social class, says Jennifer Wallace, an expert on the history of psychiatry at Imperial College London.
2: There was a sense that insanity, as they termed it, was increasing at the time and there were various suggestions put forward for that from people having to adjust to the new type of life of the late 19th century where you've got lots of developments, you've got new technologies, lots of exciting things that could also be very disruptive and new and anxiety-making to people.
0: The Victorians had massively expanded the
2: provision of care for those they termed lunatics. But
0: families were reluctant to see the head of a household enter these new asylums if it could at all be delayed. There was the stigma of mental illness, but also the practicalities of losing a male breadwinner. Sarah Levy was no exception. She seems to have kept Jacob at home, enduring his erratic behaviour with little or no medical support. Perhaps she hoped that the husband and provider of old would resurface.
2: I think it would be very difficult and you get a real sense of this sometimes when you read the statements of families and friends where they talk about things like the family business being very badly affected because a man who runs the business, for instance, he's buying hundreds and hundreds of crates of something way more than they need and he's overspent, he's put the family into financial trouble. They also might be quite unpredictable so they might wander. They might do unusual things like go into the street and start to get undressed. So there is an element of public disorder there as well and a concern about what other people are seeing. In the
0: summer of 1890, Sarah Levy perhaps bowed to the inevitable. Jacob's behaviour was apparently too much to bear and a doctor was
6: called. I, the undersigned Henry James Secchiera, To hereby certify, I personally examined Jacob Levy and came to the conclusion that he is a person of unsound mind and a proper person to be taken charge of and detained under care and treatment. Jacob was returned to an asylum. Facts indicating insanity observed by myself at the time of examination. Known patient several years, formerly shrewd businessman, now quite incapable of carrying on same, giving wrong change and money back for things bought, says he feels a something within him, impelling him to take everything he sees, feels that if he is not restrained, he will do some violence to someone, complains of hearing strange noises.
0: The doctors treating Jacob eventually concluded that he was suffering from a condition they called general paralysis of the insane.
2: The classic general paralytic patient tended to be somebody of about Jacob's age in their mid-30s who had been perhaps declining for a little while and then seemed to have had a crisis, often unable to keep working. And that tended to be the event that made men end up in the asylum when they could no longer provide for their families.
0: At the time, general paralysis was, for the most part, believed to be linked to advanced venereal disease.
2: So the final stage of untreated syphilis, when it has lain dormant for many years and then spread to the brain.
0: Patients experienced a range of symptoms as the infection attacked the nervous system. Elizabeth Stride, for example, may have begun to suffer from seizures towards the end of her life. But sufferers might see any number of upsetting and debilitating effects.
2: So it would have things like an unusual walk. People would stagger. They would look as though they were drunk, perhaps. They would be unable to do things like button their shirt. So those finer movements of the fingers would often start to disappear. They would also have facial issues that would make the diagnosis perhaps quite obvious to some doctors, where there was said to be an unusual mask-like appearance to the face and perhaps a droopiness, perhaps also unequal sized pupils as well but the mental symptoms were equally varied but also said to be quite specific so one of the classic signs of general paralysis was the so-called delusions of grandeur where patients thought that they had a lot of money or they knew somebody very famous and this would often get them into trouble and this might be the thing that caused them to be for instance picked up by the police and sent to the asylum in the first place.
0: Many of Jacob's symptoms correspond
2: to the disorder. But Jennifer is wary of this diagnosis. The fact that all our symptoms exist and tally with general paralysis isn't enough to say that this actually was general paralysis. Doctors at the time were really debating whether general paralysis was being conflated with other conditions, particularly with things like brain tumours and with alcoholism and even some more unusual things like lead poisoning. So it was something that because of its wide range of symptoms, it looked like a lot of things and a lot of other things looked like it as well. Jacob had been treated and
0: discharged from an asylum once before. Sarah must have hoped that he might return to the butcher shop, cured of his ranting, erratic ways and worrying nocturnal wanderings. She was to be cruelly disappointed. The Ripper Retold will return shortly.
1: Small business owners, this one's for you. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company.
3: Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events, chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.
10: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7pm Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
0: When Jacob arrived at Stone House, an asylum recently built in the style of a Tudor palace on the outskirts of London, he was at first well-behaved.
4: He is loquacious and apparently does not feel his position at all. There is a nonchalance in his manner which is most unfitted to his condition.
0: He suffered some initial bouts of insomnia, but these subsided, and he also demonstrated an appetite.
2: In fact, he
0: was said to eat with keen relish.
2: The daily life of a patient, if they were well enough to get out of bed and they were not in a state where they had been secluded for any reason, they would probably find themselves sitting in a day room, which might be quite sparse in terms of its entertainments, or they might have access to things like a library, so they would have games, books, the chance to walk in the grounds outside perhaps... Many asylums also put on entertainments, like plays. There were also a few football teams and sports teams in asylums.
0: Jacob himself seems to have been active. The hospital had its own farm, and he worked here daily. At one point, Sarah made the journey out along the Thames to visit him.
2: By this point, we certainly shouldn't necessarily think of the asylum in terms of this very gothic, dark, dirty institution where the floors are covered in straw. These are quite clinical environments and many of the asylums are very self-consciously scientific where they are aware of things like the need to keep places disinfected. But of course you would have patients who might have problems like incontinence or self-harm that would lead to hygiene issues, to infection issues that would need to be taken into account as well. So,
0: for all their scientific ambition, asylums like the one where Jacob was confined could still be grim. The wards might be raucous and disorderly, and patients weren't necessarily separated by illness type. There were opportunities to mix and form friendships.
2: But there would also be some patients who were very ill, very alone in those places.
0: Life for those with general paralysis could be particularly bleak.
2: If you were somebody who was in a rather reduced and bad state, you would probably be confined to bed. You would be too frail. You would probably be largely left alone for most of the day on a ward with other people who were in a similar, very sick condition.
0: Although Jacob was said to be well-behaved, his delusions as to his own importance still continued
4: such as it being in his power to give great grants of land and money.
0: Jacob started suffering attacks of giddiness and faintness and would dissolve into tears, though he could give no reason for his crying. He then suffered seizures. Eventually, he could no longer dress or undress himself, and he had to be spoon-fed. He also fell and suffered bruising, though he fiercely resisted the doctors when they tried to examine him further. And then, on July 29th, 1891...
4: His pulse cannot be counted at wrist. He gradually sank and died at 7.52pm.
0: Sarah was now left alone in the struggle to support their eight children. Hannah Jones marvels at her great-great-grandmother's fortitude.
8: She would go to some department stores in central london and she would pick up off cuts of dress materials and then she would go and sell them in the local market i believe actually she actually tried to keep the butchery business going for some time while jacob was ill because on one of the censuses she's listed as a butcher but it was very hard i mean her son my great-grandfather i know he was in a children's home for a little while during his childhood so yeah and there were times when i guess she she couldn't plug the gaps but she she did in the end, and um, most, most of them grew up and had big families of their own.
0: The timeline for Jacob's confinement and death very roughly coincide with the end of the Whitechapel murders. And his mental state in 1888, prior to being institutionalised, is one of the central planks of the accusation that he was Jack the Ripper, driven to violent madness by syphilis. Jennifer Wallace thinks there is no certainty Jacob even had this venereal disease. More interestingly, she also argues his mental illness likely rules him out as the killer.
2: A lot of the doctors at the time who work on this, they talk about these patients being childish about them being clumsy and also about them being somewhat automatic in their movements where they're really just going through the motions of life and have often regressed in some way rather than being somebody who is very calculating and planning things. They don't attempt to hide what they are doing and that seems to be a very common feature of that condition. And in fact, one of the key writers on general paralysis in this period, William Julius Mickle, he thinks it's incredibly rare for general paralytics to become involved in something like murder. And he actually emphasises that these are people who are more likely to be victims of crime than perpetrators because they are very easily led into things because of their delusions. I find it unlikely, personally, that he would, with general paralysis at that stage, have been able to commit all of those murders, do them in a methodical way, and conceal them, and for that not to come out when he was in the asylum as well. Painting a poor
0: and sick man like Jacob Levy as a calculating and deliberate murderer means ignoring obvious aspects of his appalling condition add into the mix the idea that he was taking revenge on all prostitutes because a whore had given him syphilis, and we've returned to that cognitive bias that Laurie Santos raised earlier, the desire to blame the blameless for their misfortunes. To dismiss it all as bad things happening to bad people. I'd hope to end this series on an optimistic note, since I appreciate it's been sad in some parts and maddening in others. And what that ending should be crystallized during my conversation with Laurie about empathy. When my journey researching the five victims of Jack the Ripper began, all I knew was that they were prostitutes, and even that was wrong. I could barely tell you their names, let alone where they were born, who they married, what triumphs they enjoyed, what defeats they suffered— I soon grew to know them, like them, and, of course, empathise with them. I saw beyond the surface to the real women beneath the awful labels of drunk, vagrant, or whore. But I found that my empathy wasn't confined to the ghosts of 1888. I told Laurie about walking down a London street one night and seeing a homeless woman begging with her child. I'm sure I've walked by countless women like her in the past, but now... I simply couldn't pass her by. She told me a story about how she fell into arrears on her rent and her landlord threw her out with her child. And I was staggered because this was literally a story right out of the 19th century and right there, right in that same place. And so I think writing about these women, well, writing about poverty, writing about individuals' experiences really makes you see more of the universal human experience, which I think is the great power of what history should be.
7: It should be about making a human connection through time, understanding who we are as human beings This is the kind of thing that I think can be so powerful about a podcast like yours, right? Is it's kind of like naturally allowing us to sort of flex our empathy muscles. If we can empathize with some women who died many, many years ago, who've been in circumstances who are very unlike ours, it's kind of a way to kind of boost our empathy for other people today.
0: So we've reached the end of The River Retold. I'm hopeful that by acquainting ourselves with Polly, Annie, Elizabeth, Kate and Mary Jane, we've all flexed our empathy muscles. And, with our preconceptions and prejudices challenged, perhaps we're now primed to show greater understanding and compassion to others we might simply dismiss as bad women. After we completed all the taping for this series... Hannah Jones sent us a voice message. She'd been mulling over her interview and my questions on whether she was angry about the lack of sympathy her great-great-grandfather has been shown. Sitting alone, Hannah went back to the documents detailing Jacob's decline and Sarah's battle to keep their family afloat. And then she hit the record button.
8: I think most people in my family would consider it a bit precious and a bit pretentious to be upset and outraged about a relative that died 130 years ago. But reading those notes again with fresh eyes, I have to admit it did make me cry. And I suppose the way that we think about the past, it does colour how we see people in the present too. So I wanted to add, I, I have no idea whether Jacob ever acted on his urges to do violence. We're never gonna be anywhere close to knowing who Jack the Ripper was. But if people do remember and talk about Jacob, I think they should also remember that he was somebody with a conscience who worried and felt conflicted. He once ran a solvent business. He had high hopes for his family. As a teenager, he, he suffered a horrific trauma when he found his older brother who died by suicide. At the end of his life, he was all alone and in pain and confused, and he was only 35. So I just wanted to say that he should be remembered as a real person and not just somebody who might tenuously have been Jack the Ripper. All right, thank you, that's it.
0: (laughs) Bad Women, The Ripper Retold is brought to you by Pushkin Industries and me, Hallie Rubenhold, and is based on my book, The Five. It was produced and co-written by Ryan Dilley and Alice Fines, with help from Pete Norton and Courtney Guarino. Pascal Wise sound designed and mixed the show and composed all the original music. He was accompanied by Ellie Wilson on the violin and Barry Wise and Oliver Vesey on the piano. You also heard the voice talents of Saul Boyer, Sarah Bowes, Ben Crow, Melanie Guttridge, Gemma Saunders, Rufus Wright, and Robin Wise. Bad Women, The Ripper Retold was recorded at Warder Studios in London and sound engineered by Tom Berry, Dave Smith, and Alicia Cunningham. The show also wouldn't have been possible without the work of Mia LaBelle, Jacob Weisberg, Jen Guerra, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Lital Mullard, Eric Sander, and Daniela Lucan. With special thanks to my agents Sarah Ballard and Ellie Karen, An additional thanks to Frank McGrath and Poppy Damon.